Exodus chapter 33, verse number 12. We'll begin reading. Exodus chapter 33, verse number 12. And the Bible says, And Moses said unto the Lord, See thou sayest unto me, Bring up this people. And thou hast not left me know, uh, thou hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Yet thou hast said, I know thee by name, and thou hast also found grace in my sight. Now, now therefore, I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way, that I may know thee. That I may find grace in thy sight, and consider that this nation is thy people. And he said, that's the Lord, my presence shall go with thee, and I will give thee rest. And he said unto him, and that's Moses talking to God once more, If thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. For wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? Is it not in that thou goest with us? So shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. And the Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken, for thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. And he said, I beseech thee, and here is the focus of the message. Verse 18, show me thy glory. Verse 19, and he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass, while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in a cliff of the rock, and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. Now will take away mine hand, and thou shalt see my, fa- my uh, shall see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. Now I set out to study this word glory, primarily because we have chosen that for our theme. And now we're almost six months into the year, just started the fifth month, and we really haven't spoken much about the glory of God. We certainly haven't spoken too much about unto Him be glory. And one thing I don't want us to see, uh, want to see us do as a church is to choose a yearly theme and then just kind of throw it on the wall, slap some beautiful pictures on the wall, and abandon it altogether. And so far, I think preacher... And I both have felt led to preach on other topics. And certainly I think that if the Lord led us to do that, it was for specific people's benefit. We'll never know this side of heaven who may have needed the message that we preach so far. But I feel thoroughly convinced that as we have chosen this as our theme, I feel thoroughly convinced that this is what the Lord would have me preach on now. That all being said, I thought it would be much easier than it is. I thought that it would not be near as deep of a study, one that taught me as much as it did, one that maybe I really couldn't adequately explain with the words that I could come up with, and certainly that's where I find myself this evening. The 
topic, or at least the sermon title, is this. Catching a glimpse of the glory of God. You see, in Christianity, we have basically used this term glory quite freely, but we use it in three pretty distinct ways, okay? The first way is this. We'll say it maybe we're in a funeral, and we'll say something like, we'll see our loved one on the other side of glory. What we're talking about is in heaven. We'll see them on the other side of our glorification, where it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know when he shall appear, we shall be like him. We don't have all the answers of that day that is to come, but we know that it surely will be full of glory. And so when we say we will see our loved ones on the other side of glory, that's what we mean. And I can absolutely, without any shadow of a doubt, eliminate that from the possibilities of what this passage or Ephesians chapter 3 verse 21, unto him be glory in the church forever is speaking of. So really the second way that we use it is how Ephesians 3.21 uses it. And that is when we say, unto him be glory. Oftentimes it will be preceded by the word be glory. And it supposes some activity that is there with the word be glory. And really I tried to explain it like this. When you use the term glory in this manner, it is really the act of giving God His due praise and honor. In other words, when somebody comes up to you after, maybe somebody will approach Miss Birch after service and say, Miss Birch, what a beautiful song that was. It was a, uh, I love that song. Uh, I've heard that song for years. It's always been one of my favorites. And, and maybe Miss Birch will say something like this. Amen. Praise the Lord. And what she's saying is, and that's what I try to say, I'll say, amen, praise the Lord. I I rarely say thank you because I don't feel worthy to receive thanksgiving of something that might be done to the glory of God. And so what we'll do is we'll kind of deflect any praise that comes our way to the one who is worthy of our praise. And what we're doing is we're giving him glory while trying to receive none ourselves. Unto him be glory in the church. I'll tell you right now, if our church begins to grow numerically and spiritually and really becomes a a, a place to see in our community, people begin to know where Joshua Baptist Church is and they see our events and they see the people that are in our church and the attitudes that they have. If that all starts to happen and we begin to sense a true season of revival in our church, let us be very cautious to make sure that preacher nor I receive any of the glory. For he should receive it all. Uh, Paul put it like this. Some plant, some water, but God always gives the increase. Whether you're the waterer or whether you're the planter, it really doesn't matter. Uh, uh, Me and preacher know all about putting seed in the ground and it not coming up. So when when God actually begins to do something, make sure we give him the glory. And as I study this passage, I really don't think that's the way this word is used. As Moses looks at God with with a sincere desire and he asks him this, Show me your glory. See, it's different than unto him be glory. Well, what's the difference? You see, when we give glory to God, we are rightly assigning credit. But when we view the glory of God, we are rightly assessing His credentials. You understand what I'm saying? 
You see, when we give glory to God, we're saying all the credit belongs to Him. But when we look at the glory of God, what we are saying is, I see God for who He is and how high and wonderful He is. We see His glory. We really don't know that much about it. We don't speak that much about it. But there's certainly this distinction made by Jesus. In John chapter 17, verse 4, He says this, In a prayer to the Father, he says, I have glorified thee on the earth. You see, that would be the be glory. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have given you the credit. I have given you the honor. How did he do this? Well, I have finished the work that thou gavest me to do. I honored you when I wanted to do other things. I always submitted to you. I laid down my life on the cross, even though I prayed, Lord, if it be thy will, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He was saying, I have honored you and given you the glory while I was on this earth. And he says, and now, O Father, glorify thou me. This is actually the same use as glorified thee. Jesus is asking that the Lord would then glorify him. And then he says, glorify thou me with thine own self. Now he says... With the glory which I had with thee before the world was. That's a lot of glory in just a couple verses. But what he's saying is, he's saying, while I was on this earth, I honored you and I obeyed you. And Lord, I'm about to lay down my life and I'm going to die on the cross. And Lord, I pray that you would then glorify me and restore unto me what I have set aside temporarily. You say, what did Jesus set aside? Well, you see, Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. Please do not mistake me. But in becoming man, enveiling himself in the form of a man's flesh, what he did was he took away some of the, uh, some of the advantages of being God, if you will. You say, what do you mean? I mean this. The fact that at that manger there were only a few lowly shepherds was a crime. You see, because God, the creator of the universe, came to this earth and there were just a few animals and people there to welcome him. He set aside some of the privileges of being God. You say, what do you mean, Brother Andrew? I mean at the triumphant entry of the Lord Jesus Christ, they say, oh, you need to tell everyone to be quiet. And the Lord says this, if these were to hold their peace, even these stones would cry out. And if you want to know the truth, that's the way that all of creation should have pronounced the coming of its creator. As Christ stepped on that golden staircase of glory and laid down in that manger, it should have been every animal, it should have been every man, it should have been every king that knelt down at that manger and said, Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth and goodwill to men. But it was just a few. See, Christ was all God and He was all man, but for just a moment, He set aside some of the privileges that the glory of God would carry with it. The glory of God, how does this apply? Well, to men, oftentimes the glory of God is revealed or understood through God's holiness. Isaiah chapter 6, the Bible says, Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. And then in verse 3, it goes on to say this, And there were several seraphims around the throne, and the Bible says, And one cried unto another and said, Holy 
Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And then it goes on to say, the whole earth is full of his glory. Well, what are they talking about? Well, his glory is his holiness. And oftentimes his holiness is understood or his glory is understood and perceived through his holiness. I know we're, if you'll stay with me, I know this is very deep. We'll circle back to it at the end, I promise you. Oftentimes it's manifested to us through his holiness. Sometimes it's manifested to man through his presence. You see, in Moses' ministry in Exodus chapter 24, the Bible says, And the glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it six days, and the seventh day he called unto Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And the sight of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire on the top of the mount in the eyes of the children of Israel. The children of Israel could visibly see the presence of God on the top of the mount, and to them they beheld the glory of God. You see, the glory of God is not simply isolated to His holiness. The glory of God is not isolated to His presence. We find them both in Scripture. Exodus chapter 40 tells us, Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So oftentimes it's His holiness that we recognize His glory through. Sometimes it's His presence that we recognize His glory through. I've attempted to assign a very weak definition to God's glory but I'm sure it falls far inferior to what it should be. But this is how I would like you to understand the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord is the manifestation or the realization of the completeness of God's character. That's very wordy, I know, but I'm talking about this is one of the deepest subjects I've ever studied. God's glory can be understood through a plethora of characteristics. You see, God is holy. God is righteous. God is sovereign. God is love. God is immutable. God is unchanging. And all of these characteristics make up the wonder of our God. But what we don't understand is how much better he, could, he is than we could ever imagine in all of these categories. You see, so as you understand the manifestation of God's glory, what it is is we begin to comprehend, at least in some small part, the fullness of God's perfection in one particular category. For instance, sometimes it's that he's love. And God's glory begins to become apparent to us in just a moment, maybe it's through a sermon or maybe it's in a, a quiet time with the Lord or maybe it's just something the Holy Spirit does to our heart through a song. But in some small measure, our heart, it's like the bands of our heart are loosened and we open up and begin to understand the completeness or the perfection of our God in just one particular area of His character. You say, what do you mean? I'm asking myself the very same question, to be honest with you. You see, when we begin to understand God is not just love, but He is the perfect picture and practice of love. When we begin to understand God is not just holy, 
He is holiness. By every other standard, we, f- we are foolish if we measure it by anything other than God. Amen. He is not just good at these things. He is the things of which we speak, the characteristics of which we're talking about. Here's the problem, though, when we begin to evaluate God's glory. The human experience is understood by comparison. Don't we understand how the quality of something by the quality of other things that we've tasted, touched, experienced? And we compare it. Uh, What's your favorite vehicle? I want you to think of it in your mind. Well, how do you know it's your favorite? Generally what it is is we've either had one in the past that served us well or we like the specific components on this vehicle as opposed to the other components on the other manufacturer's vehicles. How do you know you like the vehicle the best that you have? Well, it's because you either understand that the other ones aren't as good because you perceive it that way, but it's all based upon comparison, you understand. If I were to ask you where's the best steak you've ever eaten, how would you know it's the best? Well, what you would do is you would run a series of trial and errors through your mind and you would begin to compare the taste of this steak at maybe Del Frisco's or, or maybe uh, uh, one of the other fancy restaurants there and, and you would compare them to other steaks you've had. Well, why is that a problem when we begin to evaluate the glory of God? It's because there is nothing that compares to God. And the Bible says... Who is like unto thee, O God? (laughs) There is none like unto thee. So this is a real issue. This is why we read over this word like it's just another simple word in the Bible. But I'm telling you right now, this is one of the grandest doctrines I've ever studied. The glory of our God. How do we understand it if we can't compare it with anything? Well, it... Comparing this or trying not to compare this to other things would be about like trying to describe the Grand Canyon to a blind man. See, this man's never seen a mountain. This man's never seen a hole in the ground. And yet, how many of you have ever had the privilege of going and stepping out over that ledge there and having your mother somewhat have a panic attack because you're far too close to the edge, and you begin to look down in that canyon only to realize you've never seen anything so deep, so vast, so large, so beautiful. To be honest with you, I could not have began to describe it to you because it's whatever my language could do, it's so much bigger than what I could even do. You know, iPhone came out with that panorama view and and I remember trying to take a panoramic view of the Grand Canyon only to be disappointed when I went back to look at the footage because it just never can do it justice. Now I want you to try imagining what terms you would use to describe that to a blind man. You might try saying, well, it's so deep. Does that do it justice? You might say, but it's, it's so broad and wide and, and big. Well, he has nothing to compare it to. 
And I promise you whatever perception that that man would leave with would certainly be inadequate to the true reality of the Grand Canyon. You cannot compare anything to God. You say, yeah, Brother Andrew, but I love my wife, not like God loves you. You say, Brother Andrew, yeah, but I I think I'm a, a pretty good guy, not compared to God's holiness. So how do we begin to understand this? What I find unique is Moses realized he had the same exact problem that we do. It's a struggle. And that's why he says, show me thy glory. His prayer was that God would begin to reveal himself to him in a way that he had never begun to understand him before. So if you will, just for the next 15 minutes or so, that's what preacher always says, for the next 15 minutes or so, let's try to learn a little bit on how we might be able to understand in some small way the wonder of our God's glory. How are we going to do that? Well, I think number one, we should do this. We should take a look at the climate of which this request was made. Verse number 19, the Bible tells us in Exodus chapter 33, the Bible says, And I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and will proclaim thy name, uh, uh, will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. What environment, what set of circumstances prompted Moses to ask this wonderful request? (laughs) Well, number one, he asked it in the middle of a people who had just failed. Does anybody know what's significant about Exodus 33? Well, this, it follows Exodus chapter 32. And Exodus chapter 32 might be one of the grandest failures in all the Bible. The Lord is finally giving His people the law. Moses leaves them, goes up into the mountain for some time, and they look at each other and they say, what's happened to this man, Moses? And they say, I don't know. Do you know? I don't know. And they look at Aaron, the guy who's like default in charge, and they say, Aaron, up, make us gods, and that that will go before us into this land. So Aaron makes them break off the earrings, and he fashions there, At the foot of Mount Sinai, the golden calf that we all know of. That's Exodus 32. And now Moses is in Exodus chapter 33 begging God that he would see his glory. You say, what's the significance of that? Well, it's this. America is probably more sinful than at any point in, in its history. We were founded on Christian principles, but every day we see laws passed that try to erode those values from our nation's heritage. Uh, People uh, aren't even trying to legislate morality anymore. It's kind of like you do what's right in your own eyes, and it sounds pretty familiar to the book of Judges, to be honest with you. America is sinful, and honestly, what are we doing? We're standing at the foot of our golden calf right now. You say, what's the significance of Moses doing it? I'm saying this, the cultural climate ought not determine the spiritual temperature of Christians. Just like it gets 105 degrees in Texas in the summer and your home stays a nice 72 degrees. How does that happen? Well, there's a thermostat on the wall and you adjust it. 
The temperature outside ought not determine the temperature on the inside. And while we live in this world, we are not of this world. While we are surrounded by wickedness, we are commanded to be holy and righteous. How do we do that? Well, the Bible tells us it's, it's, we're perfectly capable of it because Moses, a man in the middle of people full of mistakes, is now has the audacity to look God square in his eye and say, God, show me your glory. For the person that wants to see God's glory tonight, God does not care where you are, what temperature your home is. He does not care what uh, uh, country you live in. God says, if you will draw nigh unto him, he will draw nigh unto you. The encouragement is this, Christian. I don't care if your church is not spiritual. I don't care if your home is not spiritual. I don't care if where you are at at the workplace is not spiritual. God does not eliminate the possibility of revealing His glory to you based upon those around you. I also believe the Bible says that a wise man doesn't surround himself with a companion of fools though too. What environment, what climate does, does Moses request this in? Well, he requests it right in the middle of a bunch of people that are right on the backside of their biggest failure. I want you to secondly see the passion of Moses, though. The passion of Moses. You see, he requested it uh, in the middle of people who failed, but he also requested it in, in just an amazing amount of passion. Through Exodus chapter 24 to Exodus chapter 32, when Moses comes down out of the mountain to discover that the children of Israel have made this golden calf, about eight chapters in length. You want to know where Moses has been? He's been on the mountain. Every day, every night, every moment, every minute, communing with Almighty God. Receiving the law of God, really the first written revelation of God to His people. That had been a special moment. Well... Then you move forward just a few chapters and and here in Exodus chapter 33, the Bible tells us that because of the people's sin, the tent of meeting or the tabernacle that we know of is placed outside the camp of Israel. And anybody that wants to go meet with God, you know where they have to go? They have to leave the camp to go meet with God in the tent of meeting. The Bible tells us that every day Moses goes and does this. The presence of God falls on the place while he's there. And in fact, everyone comes and stands at their door and views as Moses enters the the tabernacle. God's presence is there. And the Bible literally says this. Moses met with God as face to face. Uh, Eight chapters prior, where is Moses? Oh, he's meeting with God. Now in this chapter, where's Moses? Probably closer to God than any man in history that I know of. He's meeting with God as face to face. Why would he then ask for God to reveal his glory to him? Well, it's because Moses couldn't get enough God. There was no amount of God that Moses Moses said, yeah, I'm, I'm content knowing that. Yeah, I'll just stop with my knowledge. I'll just stop with my passion. I'll just stop with my commitment and my love for my God. No, he says, there is no amount of God's revelation of his relationship with me that I will say, I want no more. He just kind of, like a good buffet, said, bring on another, brother. 
That's what Moses said. Let me ask you a question. How much God is enough God for you? And, and, and I don't say this to you because obviously this doesn't apply to you. But for a large portion of our church, the God they get on Sunday morning is enough for them. You say, Brother Andrew, that's wrong to judge. I'm not judging. I'm just telling you. Moses had just spent eight chapters with God, 40 days and 40 nights meeting with him. Now he's going to church every day, if you'll allow me the liberty to say that. He's going to church every day to meet with God. And now he looks at God and says, God, it's not enough. It's just not enough. What you're giving me is great, God, but I want more. I want you to show me your glory. How many church services do you think it would take to see God's glory? I don't have that answer, but I would suspect it's probably more than one. I would suspect it's probably even more than two, or, and, and frankly, three. How much God is enough for you? Moses had a passion here, and it could not be met. It's no different than Paul saying, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. He says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. That's all he wanted to know was a little bit more Christ. He said, And I sought to know nothing among you save the Lord Jesus and Him crucified. That's all I want to know is just a little bit more about Jesus. More about Jesus would I know. That's what the hymn writer said. How much God is enough God for you? See, Moses had a passion. Moses was in the middle of a people who had just failed. But thirdly, I want you to notice the prayers of Moses. This is pretty unique and it speaks a great deal of our insufficiencies as Christians. But verse 13 and 14, we find Moses praying a prayer of deliverance. The Bible says, Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way, that I may know thee, that I might find grace in thy sight, and consider that this nation is thy people. He's saying, show me now thy way. Lord, don't abandon us now. I know we're we're not good, we're not worth it. Lord, I realize that, but show me your way. He prays a prayer of deliverance. And you know what God says? He answers that prayer. In verse 14, my presence shall go with thee and I will give thee rest. Not only a prayer of deliverance, but he prays in verse 16, a prayer for distinction. He says, for wherein shall it be known here that I and thy people have found grace in thy sight? Is it not that thou goest with us? And he says this, so shall we be separated. I and thy people from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. He says the only thing that makes us special is not our numbers, is not our talents, is not our skills. The only thing that makes us distinct from every other nation is that you, the God of Jehovah, go with us. That's what he says. He prays a prayer of deliverance. He prays a prayer of distinction. You find in verse 17 that God answers his prayer. And the Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken. Now, Stay with me. Moses in the span of just about five verses has seen two prayer requests answered. Right? He says, Lord, you've got to go with us. Show me the way that I might know how to lead these people. And God says, okay, Moses, I'll do that. First one answered, right? 
And then he says, Lord, the only thing that makes us a unique nation is that you go with us and that we are your chosen nation. So, Lord, separate us and stay with us. And he prays a prayer of distinction. And God says, okay, I will do what you've asked. Boy, I don't know about you, but I would like to have two of my prayer requests answered, especially back to back. Sometimes I feel like I'm batting the Mendoza line on prayer requests, if you know what I mean. That's a, 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 a baseball player that only bats 200. Sometimes I feel like my prayer requests aren't always getting answered. And Moses just now did two for two. That's pretty awesome. Notice this. He doesn't stop there. He asks a third. He asks for a prayer of discovery. Verse 18. And I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And God says... I will make all my goodness pass before thee. Moses now has asked three consecutive prayer requests and three have been answered. That's a special kind of Christianity, would you not say? Uh, Batting three for three? Man, that's Hall of Fame numbers there. That's Hall of Faith numbers. Uh, Get it? Because preacher preached in Hebrews 11 about Moses this morning, Hall of Okay, all right. It wasn't that good. All right, whatever. Give me a break. (laughs) Three for three. I mean, that's the kind of prayer life I want. But to be honest with you, when I get a prayer request answered, sometimes I don't feel... I'll tell you what it feels like, okay? It feels like I'm using up my tokens. I know that sounds crazy. I remember this one time my brother... Gene Jr. took me and his son, Corey, to an arcade. The owner of the arcade was a member of Gene's church. This was in Gatlinburg, Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. And, and, uh, and we went to this arcade. I'll never forget this because this is the only time in my life this has ever happened. Because the owner of the arcade was a member of Gene Jr.'s church, he brought us out a 44-ounce cup full of tokens. It was amazing. Man, we were rifling through them. We had this one game that was basically meant for the only purpose of getting tickets. That's all we did all day. We spent probably three hours there dropping coins into this little ski slide and it goes up and it lands and if you land it in the slot, you might get up to a thousand tickets. It was wonderful. 44 ounce cup. Well, we've been working on that for about two hours, and Gene grabs my cup, and I said to Gene, hey, man, I'm not done with that. And Gene says, oh, I'm going to get you some more tokens. I said, more tokens? This is like the greatest day of my life. If 44 ounces of tokens wasn't enough, now I'm getting more tokens? Well, if that's not an example of our God, I don't know what is. But sometimes we feel as if we're using up our tokens when we begin to see God move in our life. Let me tell you what, God is not counting the times that he works for you. God is not there saying, oh, well, no, that's all your brownie points for today. Now we've got to move on to something else. That's not the way our God works. That's what I believe the Bible means when it says, and we can boldly approach the throne of grace. Man, if you got one answer today, that don't mean you just stop coming in tomorrow. You just approach God and say, God, you're still the same God that was good to me yesterday and I know you're the same God that can be good to me today. Dear God, please bless me today. That's the kind of God we serve. 
And I think that's what Moses was. He was that type of man. That's why he was unashamed to look at God and say, God, show me your glory. What kind of environment did he ask this question in? Well, we've just seen that. I want you to see secondly, though, the coming of this relationship, or or the coming of this revelation. You see, we saw the climate of the request, but now we look at the coming of this revelation. Verse 19, and the Bible says, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God chooses to reveal himself to Moses in two very unique ways. Remember, the prayer request here is that God would show his glory, right? Moses says, God, show me thy glory. And God says, okay. And his answer is this. I will make all my goodness pass before thee. Well, wait a minute. That's not what he asked for. He asked for glory. God chose goodness. Now, if you rewind the message back to the introduction, what did we say? God's glory is one of many characteristics of God. God's holiness, God's love, God's sovereignty, God's purity. All of these make up the character of our God, and He is glorious in every characteristic that He has. And so when Moses says, God, show me your glory, if Moses wanted a specific one, he should have been more specific. But he says, show me your glory. And God, for some unknown reason, says this, I choose goodness. Well, why doesn't he choose holiness? Why doesn't he choose righteousness? Why doesn't he choose uh, uh, one of the many characteristics that he possesses? Well, I would hate to be so uh, audacious that I think I could present that to you, but may I allow Matthew Henry to do it. He might be a bit more qualified on the subject. Maybe not. But he says it like this. God's goodness is his glory. Oh, this is good. And he will have us to know him by the glory of his mercy more than by the glory of his majesty. You see, God is majestic. God is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And when you begin to view the glory of God and his majesty and his wonder, you know what that does? It's, it's, it's a beautiful thing, but you know what it does? It, it reveals to us the distance between us. You with me? When you see God as creator of the universe, king, judge of the universe, what it shows is it shows how far we are from him. But when he chose his goodness, it not only, while he is still far from us, it shows us the solution to that distance. You see, he is so far from us in every category. He is higher than us. There is none to be compared to our God. But when he chooses goodness, what we begin to see is his method for repairing that relationship. 
Oh yeah, he's so far from us in his goodness and his love and his mercy and his grace and all of these wonderful things. But when you see his goodness, you understand the bridge that gets us to the majestic king of kings and lord of lords. That's why God chose his goodness. God's majesty points to the distance between God and man, while God's goodness points to the assistance he gave man to solve that problem. Why did he choose God's goodness? Well, certainly he is a good God. Psalm chapter 31, verse 19. Oh, how great is thy goodness, which thou hast laid up for them that fear thee, which thou hast wrought for them that trust in thee before the sons of man. Psalm chapter 34, verse 8, one of my favorite verses. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Would you agree tonight that our God is a good God? He is so good to us. And every day he chooses to reveal himself to us in the form of a good God and not necessarily all the time in the form of a righteous God. You see, he is righteous and he is judge. But judges rain down condemnation. Friends and advocates rain down love and mercy. And that's the God that we serve. Moses says, show me thy mercy. And he says, show me thy glory. And you know what God says? Okay, I'll choose the one that I enjoy giving to you the most. My goodness. He is so good. But he doesn't just reveal his goodness. Notice secondly, he reveals to Moses his sovereignty. Well, that's a big theological word there, but notice in verse 19. The Bible says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. That's a tough scripture to digest. You know what it is? It's a bit like the awkwardness of choosing teams at recess. And this is the way a lot of really educated doctors of theology would like you to imagine God choosing people to salvation is. God goes down the line and in his sovereignty, he says, not for any particular reason, you're worthy. You're worthy. You're not worthy. You'll be saved. You'll be saved. You won't make it. And none of this has to do with our choice or or our... uh, our will at all. It's God just chooses this and and basically saddles us. And you say, well, he's not selecting those to damnation. He's just selecting them to heaven. No, by default, if he chooses some to salvation, he rejects others to salvation. You understand? And what it is, is it's like we all are in middle school again, lined up against the wall and God is selecting his dodgeball team. And God goes down the line and he says, okay, you're on my team. You're on my team. You're on my team. And for years, very educated doctors of theology have scared people with this type of thinking. You see, the sovereignty of God is a very scary thing in the hand of the wrong kind of God. In the hand of a God that chooses like that, it would be frightening. Who knows if I'm going to persevere to the end? Oh, I don't know. I'm just hoping. Who knows if you're going to persevere? I don't know. I hope nothing besets us and and, and causes us to lose our faith. 
Oh, I hope that nothing gets in our way like that. In the hand of the wrong kind of God, that's a very scary thing. But in the hand of the God who first chooses to reveal goodness before sovereignty, it's not such a bad thing. You see, because Titus tells us the grace of God, which bringeth salvation, hath appeared to all men. God says, oh, I have the right to choose. Did you know God owes you nothing? Did you know you deserve nothing from God? Did you know based upon your own actions and not the actions of your mother Eve and not the actions of your father Adam, not their fault, but by your own sin, you separated yourself and alienated yourself from the love and the grace and the mercy of God. And God owes us not a thing. And friend, listen to this. You have nothing to bargain with. And yet God's goodness swoops down and he says, for he will have all men to come to repentance. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God says, oh, I can give mercy to whoever I want to give mercy to and I can extend grace to whoever I want to extend grace to. But he then follows it up with this, oh, I'm so good, I'll give it to everybody if they'll take it. That's a God. That's a God who is full of glory. That's a God who is worth serving. And why does God choose his sovereignty and his goodness? Your, your guess is as good as mine, but certainly I like the order that he did it in, don't you? First goodness, then sovereignty. Okay. Moving on, we got to hurry. I'm well past my 15 minutes and I feel terrible about that. I'm going to have to get right with God, amen? So number one, we've seen the climate of Moses' request. Number two, we notice the coming of this revelation. How would it come? Well, it would come through his goodness and it would come through his sovereignty. And then number three, I want you to see this. The coaching of his reception. Now, there are some very unique instructions given to Moses here. Don't you like how God comes up with unique plans? I mean, I remind you of Jericho. The battle of Jericho. Hey, Joshua, just take some horns and, and some jars. I'll tell you what, you're going you're gonna to win. I think that's pretty cool, honestly. Disney ought to get onto that ride because they're coming up with some... I mean, how many superhero movies are we going to have before we start making new stuff? That's my question. So... So I like God's strategies. And God's strategy here, his method of coaching Moses is pretty unique too. Moses' prayer is this. God, show me thy glory. And God gives him instructions on how to receive it. Number one, notice this. The place of the sight. Verse number 21, the Bible says, And the Lord said, Behold... There is a place by me. And thou shalt stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in a cliff of the rock and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. Have you ever wondered what the significance of the cliff of the rock is? I mean, we sing about it, don't we? He hideth my soul. 
in the cleft of the rock. I mean, it's a beautiful song. I love that song. We sing about it oftentimes, but I wonder if we really have ever thought about the meaning of it. Certainly, or the significance of it. I wonder if it's purely coincidental that about 20 times in Scripture, Jesus is referred to as the rock. I wonder if that's coincidental. I wonder if it's purely coincidental that when a Christian is placed in Christ, he is a new creature. I wonder if it's purely coincidental that uh, the Bible says, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. No more can ye except ye abide in me. I wonder if it's just coincidental that God told Moses, Hey Moses, you're going to go place yourself right in the middle of a big rock wonder if it's just all happenstance or if there's a greater picture, a greater lesson here for us to learn. I believe there is. And the lesson is this. No Christian will ever see the glory of God in any respect except through the Lord Jesus Christ. What does Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Y'all know the rest of the verse? No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And I just wonder if it's just coincidental that the great cornerstone that was to be laid in Zion, the chief cornerstone, you know the stone that the builders rejected and was set at not that stone, the one that Peter talks about and all the Old Testament prophets talk about. I just wonder if somewhere along the way God thought this out, that if Moses wanted to see the glory of the Father, he had to go through the person of the Son. I wonder if that's coincidental. Christian, I'm telling you right now, you will only be as close to God as you are to Jesus. You say, aren't they the same? Exactly. (laughs) You get to know the goodness of God through the goodness that we've experienced through Christ. Man, this boggles my mind. I almost don't even want to go down this this trail because I, I can't even explain it. But do you understand that when Christ laid his hands on that cross, it was not the person of God, but it was God laying on that cross. It was just as if the Father were there. It was just as if temporarily the Heavenly Father, the King of kings and Lord of lords, vacated the throne room in heaven and laid himself on that cruel cross to die for your sins and my sins. You know why he did that? I'll tell you why. So we could experience the glory of all of his other good characteristics. We could experience the glory of his holiness without fear and trembling. We could experience the goodness and the depth and the riches of his love because Christ loved us more than we could ever imagine. That's a God worth serving. And the place that you go to find your glory matters. You can read every Joel Olstein book you want. You can read every, well, Victoria is a better preacher. So you can listen to every sermon preached by Victoria Olstein. You can go to all these sorts of places. In fact, you can listen to me and preach or preach all you want. But you will not experience the glory of God through us 
You can only experience the glory of God through the person of God, the Heavenly Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only way. Oh, I think it's more than coincidental. What does the hymn writer say? Oh, he says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Oh, and then he goes on to say, on Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. The way we're going to experience the glory of God is through the person of his son, the place of this sight. And I want you to see finally the partial view of this sight. Notice in verse 21, the Bible says, And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock. And it shall come to pass while my glory passeth by. Which this is the answer to Moses' prayer request. That I will put thee in a cliff of the rock. And then he says this. And will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. I will take away my hand and thou shalt see my back parts. But my face shall not be seen. Certainly we understand why in verse 23, God says, my face cannot be seen. He says, there shall not any man see my face and live. Anybody that tells you they woke up in a dream and saw God, they're lying through their teeth. I don't care how close of a friend they are. I don't care if they're your brother. They're lying through their teeth because the Bible states without any confusion at all, there hath no man seen God at any time except the Son Christ is the only one that's ever seen God the Father. So your brother-in-law, your uncle that's on a little bit of a high, none of these people have seen God, I promise. Sometimes it's, it's frustrating. You don't want to offend people, but that's the reality of the matter. You have not seen God. And if you had seen God, you would not have lived to tell the story. Flesh does not stand in the presence of God. His holiness is so much higher, we would just disintegrate like we would never even there. Say, how do you know that, Brother Andrew? Well, you remember the Old Testament priest that would one time every year enter the Holy of Holies. Why did he go to the Holy of Holies? Well, it took him a long time to get to the place where he could go into the Holy of Holies. There was a lot of confession. There was a lot of cleansing. And finally, one time a year, he could approach the, the place of God's presence. For what purpose? To apply the blood of the lambs and the, uh, to, the, to the mercy seat of God. To temporarily postpone the justice of God. Yes. One time a year. And y'all have heard several times over what happened to that man if he was unfit for the service, right? Oh, he wouldn't make it out alive. There is no flesh that stands in God's presence. And so God tells Moses, Moses, I'm going to place you back in the cleft of the rock. And I'm going to put my hand over you. This, this is the only way I can identify with this. Have you ever been watching television and your child or something is sitting right beside you and a commercial, just a ghastly commercial comes on? What's the first thing you do? You throw your hand over their eyes like you were the, the spiritual visor, not advisor, the visor that blocks their vision from seeing all the world's ills. That's the only thing I can equate it to, is God places his hand over Moses in the cleft of this rock, and he sees only the hinder parts as God passes by. I don't know if this is a great application, but I thought of this. 
oftentimes when we're going through life, and, and frankly every day in the Christian life, we want to see God work, don't we? We want to see Him moving in our life. We want to feel as if we really matter to God. And it's not all just confined in some 66 books that apply to everybody else but us. We want to feel God move in our life. And so we ask Himself to show Himself to us. We ask Him to show Himself to us. We'll say, God, I need to see you work. I remember praying a prayer like that in Bible college one time. God, everybody else around here seems to be talking like you're doing something for them. And just honestly, I'm trying to live right. I'm trying to do right. But I just don't feel like I am as spiritual as everybody else. I just don't feel like you're doing everything or the things that you're doing for everybody else. I don't feel like you're doing them for me. I remember praying a prayer like that. And we want to feel God work in our lives distinctly and uniquely. But God says sometimes you won't see him so vividly clear. Sometimes even when you ask to see God's glory, he says, I'll give you only glimpses. I'll place you in places that may be dark and cold, maybe, I don't know, like the cleft of the rock. Lonely, isolated from everybody else, just you with a prayer. And he says, there's going to be something happening. It's going to feel like I'm so far from you. Oh, maybe, I don't know, like a hand reaching over and covering your eyes. Almost like you're stumbling through life, not having a real answer. And he says, at just the right moment, I'm going to remove that hand. And you're going to see me. Now, you're not going to see all of me. And it may just be a glimpse. It may just be enough to get you through. But I'll show you my glory. Almost like the psalmist said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil for thy rod and thy staff. They comfort and they guide me. He says, Thou preparest a table for me in the presence of my enemies. He says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And then he says, My cup runneth over. What was he saying? He's saying just at the right time, your hand came off in the valley of the shadow of death. And I began to see God's goodness operate in my life. And it didn't just so vividly appear like, oh, God was doing something for me at that exact moment. It just came in the presence of a rod or or maybe the direction of a staff. But I knew that God was working for me. I hope tonight there's some Christians in this room that will boldly approach the throne of God, not because we deserve it, not because we're worthy of it, but because He is offering it. And we kneel a knee at this altar and we say, God, I'm not content with the status quo. I'm not content with mediocrity. I'm not content living like every other Christian with a lifeless Christianity. I want to see your glory. I'm tired of hearing about your glory from others. I'm tired of hearing about it in songs. I'm tired about reading books about it. Lord, I need to see your glory. I wonder if there's a Christian tonight that'll say that. 